From Brennan to the Bocachil, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Salduck to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. Climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 91, Seattle's Hometown Baseball Hero. The third child of Dr. Joseph Lambert Hutchinson and Nona Burke Hutchinson, Fred Hutchinson was born in Seattle on the 12th of August, 1919. In 1873, Joseph was born in Maple Grove, Wisconsin, and in 1878, his wife was born in Wisconsin's Peshtigo Harbor. They moved in 1907 to the southeast Seattle neighborhood of Rainier Beach, where Joseph opened a storefront medical clinic and additionally carried out operations at First Hill Hospitals. Marvin Buzz Anderson, president of the Rainier Valley Historical Society, who was acquainted with the family, said that the majority of the doctor's practice involved treating clients who had been hurt at the Taylor's Mill in Rainier Beach. However, he also traveled by ferry to see clients on the east side at times as well. Bill and John, Fred's elder brothers, helped him develop his baseball skills and competitive nature by teaching him to bat left-handed at one point so he could get to first base more quickly. Emmett Watson, a Seattle Times columnist, recalled that Bill once told him with pride, I reared that boy, just before his death in 1997. Both Bill and John would later play baseball for Dorset Tubby Graves at the University of Washington. Bill led the Pacific Coast Conference champions in 1931 as their captain, but he abandoned a bright baseball career to pursue a career in medicine. He continued to be passionate about baseball, teaching his kids, nephews, and other players over the years. John played a summer season for the St. Louis Browns organization when he was a student at the university. Fred Hutch developed a strong sense of competitiveness early on. He guided Brighton and Emerson Elementary Schools to city titles, where he primarily played catcher until his sophomore year of high school. From 1934 to 1937, he served as an essential member of Franklin High School's championship teams as a pitcher, catcher, first baseman, and outfielder. In the interim, he played with Gibson's Carpet Cleaners and Palace Fish of the American Legion League, helping Palace Fish advance to the Western playoffs. He also had a brief appearance in 1937 as a semi-pro pitcher with the Northwest League's Yakima Indians, posting a 16-2 record. Big hands and great control were a blessing for him, according to J.B. Parker, who first caught Hutchinson. He was possibly the best competitor I have ever seen. He wasn't fast, but he was quick enough, he said. Amazing control, a natural sinker, a short, choppy curve, and a well-domesticated change of pace were among his main weapons. He was known as the Iceman because of his cool demeanor on the mound, although stories of his temper date back to his elementary school years. Seattle newspaperman Paul O'Neill described him as having his shock of brown hair, pink cheeks, and the habit of looking at batters with a blank expression of one who detects a somewhat disagreeable odor in a Saturday Evening Post article. In a 1957 piece for Sports Illustrated, Seattle Post-Intelligencer columnist Emmett Watson described Hutchinson as having a face that may have been cut out by an angry sculptor with a dull chisel. A second beer tycoon, Jacob Rupert, who had transformed the New York Yankees into baseball's renowned powerhouse of the 1920s and 30s, allegedly piqued Emil Six's interest and convinced him to purchase the financially troubled Seattle Indians baseball team in 1937. To further market his beer, Sick renamed the team the Rainiers and hired Seattle sportsman businessman Morosco C. Torchy Torrance to head the organization. Hutchinson was one of Torchy's new recruits earning $2,500 and 20% of any potential future sales price. 
According to Patsy Hutchinson, Fred Hutchinson's wife, Brother John assisted in negotiating the 20% clause in the contract. Between Rainier Avenue and McClellan Street, Sick also constructed Sick Stadium, a $500,000, 14,600-seat, cutting-edge stadium he paid for with his own money. He reportedly did not ask the taxpayers for a penny. On the mound and at the plate, Hutchinson became a hero right away, and he made headlines after just one game. Hutchinson won his 19th Pacific Coast League game on the 12th of August, 1938, as he celebrated his 19th birthday by defeating the San Francisco Seals 3-2. 16,354 people filled Six Stadium for the game. Hutch continued to play baseball and had a remarkable 25-7 record, a 2.48 earned run average, 29 full games pitched, and a 313 batting average. He was recognized as the league's most valuable player and contributed to Seattle's league-leading 437,161 attendance. He was awarded the Best Minor League Player of the Year by Sporting News. According to an Associated Press report in the Milwaukee Journal on the 8th of July 1938, Hutchinson was the find of the season and was sought after by a number of major league teams, including the New York Yankees, Pittsburgh Pirates, Chicago Cubs, Boston Red Sox, and the Detroit Tigers. When Rupert of the Yankees asked, Sick requested an unprecedented $250,000 in 10 players. The largest transaction for a minor league player in 10 years took place on the 12th of December 1938 when Hutchinson was eventually moved to the Detroit Tigers for $50,000 and four players. The Rainiers gained a strong talent base as a result of the deal, and in 1939, 1940, and 1941, they won the Pacific Coast League pennant. Hutch's first contribution to his hometown and his legacy was the epidemic of Rainier fever that swept through Seattle and brought in record crowds thanks to the deal. Hutchinson also spent less than a semester in 1938 studying at the University of Washington. Although his Major League pitching debut was nothing out of the ordinary, baseball history will remember it as one for the ages. On the 2nd of May, 1939, as the New York Yankees were in Detroit for their inaugural road trip, baseball legend Lou Gehrig decided to take a seat and break his record-setting streak of 213 straight games, which remained until 1995 when it was surpassed by Cal Ripken Jr. Hutchinson entered the game as a relief pitcher and saw the Yankees thrash Detroit 22-2, where he ended up giving up eight runs in two-thirds of an inning, four hits, and five walks. Hutchinson was promptly assigned to the Toledo Mudhens, a double-A farm team in Detroit. He recovered, was demoted to the Buffalo Bisons in 1941, and had quite a remarkable season there, with a 26-7 pitching record and batting 385 to win Most Valuable Player of the International League. Hutchinson's career would be halted by the Second World War, as it was for many players in the big leagues and millions of other Americans. On the 24th of October, 1941, he enlisted in the Navy for a four-year tour in order to avoid being drafted into the Army. Lieutenant Commander Gene Tunney, a former world heavyweight boxing champion, was in charge of the Navy's physical education program at the time. Throughout his time of duty, he served as a chief petty officer, Although he had some hunting expertise and briefly served as a shooting range teacher at Norfolk Navy Training Station in Virginia, his greatest contribution during his enlistment was playing baseball and a little bit of basketball. In St. Augustine, Florida in 1943, he married a Franklin High School classmate named Patsy Finley, who is currently serving as a member of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. They traveled from Norfolk to Idaho to Sandpoint Naval Air Station in Seattle during their time in the military, which served as a nomadic forerunner to their baseball years after she left the Army. Without Patsy, Hutchinson was subsequently sent to Hawaii. 
The couple would eventually have four children, Fred Jr., Rick, born in 1944, John, Jack, born in 1945, Patty Joe, born in 1948, and Joseph, born in 1953. After receiving his naval discharge, Hutchinson rejoined the Tigers and was given a slot in the starting rotation alongside Paul Dizzy Trout, Hal Newhauser, and Virgil Fire Trucks. From 1946 to 1951, Hutchinson had an 87-57 and record with Detroit. He was also a great hitter, especially so for a pitcher, and was frequently used in the pinch hit position. Baseball's most astounding modern pitching personage, according to Lyle Smith of the Detroit Free Press, made an appearance in the 1951 All-Star Game. On a less motivational note, Fred allowed Ted Williams to hit his 502-foot home run at Fenway Park in 1946. The crimson paint-covered seat where the ball finally landed can still be found at Fenway Park to this day. Joseph Hutchinson, Fred Hutchinson's father, retired from medicine in 1948 after suffering a stroke, and he would pass away at the age of 78 in 1951. His mother passed away in 1962 at the age of 84. Hutchinson's teammates voted him player representative in 1947 because they had thought so highly of him. He was chosen as the American League's player representative the following year, a position he kept up until 1952 when he switched to management. He aided in getting the owners to agree to a $5,000 minimum pay, a $25 weekly spring training expense fund, and the donation of All-Star Game and World Series broadcast earnings to the players' pension fund. He provided testimony in 1951 at hearings held by the U.S. House of Representatives on baseball's reserve clause, which gave a team the sole authority to renew a player's contract. That was an essential and reasonable measure for the maintenance of organized baseball, according to Hutchinson, who also stated that the players endorsed the cause. But not all of them did, and the cause would be repealed at the beginning of the 1970s. Detroit was in last place in the American League of July of 1952, and 32-year-old Hutchinson was having arm problems with a 2-1 record. He was chosen by the Tigers' ownership to succeed Robert Red Rolfe as manager. He occasionally pitched or pinch hit as he led the team to 6th and 5th place finishes in the following two seasons, but he left after the 1954 campaign because the team would only offer him a one-year deal. Outfielder and future Hall of Famer Al Kaleen of the Tigers noted, He desired for his teams to play with pride and avoid embarrassing themselves. He was the direct type of man. Hutchinson didn't stay unemployed for very long though, and his managing career was marked by ups and downs and many moves as a result of his time in Detroit. His old high school teammate, Dewey Soriano, was named general manager of the struggling Seattle Rainiers in 1951. In 1955, he persuaded Hutchinson to return as manager as part of the franchise's rebuilding efforts at a salary that was less than half of what he had received while he was with the Tigers. The greatest of all Rainier seasons was 1955. Hutch simply outmanaged and outfought the opposition to win the pennant in a nail-biting series against Seattle's hated arch-rivals, the Los Angeles Angels, all without having a single 300-hitter or 20-game winner. On the 11th of that September, Seattle won the pennant and the celebration was comparable to Mardi Gras and Veterans Day combined. He was chosen as the league's manager of the year by baseball writers. Frank Lane, general manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, another historically significant team that was having financial difficulties, was impressed by Hutchinson's managerial abilities, particularly with young players. Under Hutchinson, the squad improved in 1956 and advanced to second place in 1957, and his on-field approach remained tumultuous and direct. Hutchinson won the National League Manager of the Year award thanks to the Cardinals' performance, but any happiness would be fleeting. He tolerated no interference from August Bush Jr., the beer mogul owner, or the snobby Lane. 
On the 18th of July, 1957, while leading the Brooklyn Dodgers 9-4 in a game, Hutchinson defied baseball tradition by leaving left-hander Wilmer Vinegar Bend Mizell in the game to pitch against right-handed Dodger slugger Gil Hodges. This decision sparked outrage from the crowd and a public reprimand from Lane. Hodges' home run with the bases loaded tied the game, and the Dodgers went on to win 10-9 in extra innings. When confronted by Lane and Bush following the game, Hutchinson's answer was simply, let me alone to do my job. With an 87-67 record, the 1957 Cardinals ended respectably in second place, eight games behind the Milwaukee Braves. Now keep in mind, this wasn't like today's game, where it seems like half the league makes the playoffs. Only the pennant winners advanced straight to the World Series, so despite the strong finish, it wasn't quite strong enough to make it to the series. The 1958 campaign, however, was a complete failure for the Cards, who fell to a tie for fifth place with the Chicago Cubs. After being let go, Hutchinson returned to the Rainiers in 1959, this time serving temporarily as both general manager and field manager. The Cincinnati Reds controlled the 1959 Rainiers, who acted as their premier feeder team. Despite having a lineup full of talent, including pitcher Don Newcomb, outfielders Vada Pinson, who I might add, should be a member of the Hall of Fame, he also briefly coached for the Seattle Mariners once his playing days were finished, as well as Frank Robinson and a decent pitching staff. The Reds were having trouble by July of that year. Hutchinson would be hired to take over as manager for Mayo Smith. Hutchinson turned the Reds around, but it took two years of adversity. In 1959, they finished 74-80, and 80, 13 games out of first place. In 1960, they fell even lower, finishing a paltry 67-87, and 87, a whopping 28 games back from first. Hutchinson's experiences at Detroit and St. Louis were tainted by front office turmoil, and the Cincinnati Reds were also affected. Hutchinson's hiring manager, Gabe Paul, left to take over the Houston Colt 45s, an expansion team that would later become the much-hated Houston Astros in 1965. At the conclusion of the 1960 season, Bill DeWitt Sr. took over as general manager of the Reds, but Powell Crosley, the 75-year-old Reds owner for 27 years, passed away in March of 1961, casting doubt on the team's ownership. The Reds had low preseason expectations, but DeWitt successfully negotiated certain deals. Veterans like Pinson and Robinson had standout seasons, and the Reds swept to the National League Championship with a record of 93-61, their first pennant since 1940. Hutchinson's explosive personality was still being covered by the sports media, yet he was once more named National League Manager of the Year. Unfortunately, the New York Yankees, who were led by sluggers like Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, and Elston Howard, as well as pitcher Whitey Ford, were the Reds' World Series opponent. The Yankees easily won the series four games to one. With the 98-64 record, the Reds came in third place in 1962 behind the San Francisco Giants. With an 86-76 record, they fell even worse in 1963, finishing in sixth place. Leo Cardenas, a future all-star shortstop, and Pete Rose, a hometown boy and the 1963 Rookie of the Year, were added to the sturdy veteran team. In 1964, the Reds were anticipated to be quite a strong team. The Hutchinson family had a terrible time adjusting to their itinerant lifestyle, and Patsy Hutchinson had to handle it all as she put it. There were some enjoyable moments too, though. The boys played baseball for the young teams that Bill coached while spending the summers in Seattle, living with their Uncle Bill and relatives. The post-war housing in Cincinnati was nothing more than Quonset huts, according to Patsy, but at least the children had other kids to play with. Although a volatile player, Hutchinson was kind to young players. 
One player remarked, he was pretty much the same as a parent. As long as you tried and gave it your all, he didn't care if you were average. He had a lot of admiration for athletes who gave it their all despite not having a lot of natural talent. Hutchinson was old school and very conservative, and he detested showboating, unlike other of the more colorful managers of the era, including Leo the Lip de Rucher and Chuck Dressen. He was a true gentleman, and if I didn't open the door for a woman, God help me. Also, he had to have perfect table manners, yet his method of managing was subtle. A stern gaze would accomplish whatever he wanted. In 1959, the Hutchinsons had constructed a permanent residence on Anna Maria Island, a sandbar west of Bradenton, Florida. Rick continued to play baseball at Florida State University while Jack temporarily played for the Cincinnati Reds organization, but he showed no interest in continuing his father's baseball career. I didn't like traveling around back then because there wasn't as much money. I'd had enough of it. The 1964 Cincinnati Reds season would end up being Hutchinson's least important issue. A bump on his neck discovered in December of 1963 led him to Seattle and to his brother William, also known as Dr. Bill, a renowned surgeon at the time. It was discovered that Hutchinson had malignant thymona and lung cancer due to smoking three packs of cigarettes each day since his time in the Navy. He made the declaration in the Seattle office of his old friend Dewey Soriano only eight days before the release of the first Surgeon General's report on smoking and cancer, which generated national headlines. He attended spring training while receiving radiological treatment in Seattle, where he perched in a lifeguard chair and tooled around in a golf cart. For the Reds, the season got off to a good start, not so for Hutchinson. He received additional treatment in a hospital in Cincinnati on the 27th of July, but he returned to the bench on the 4th of August. The sickness was quickly taking its toll. The team replied by defeating the Milwaukee Braves 5-2 and 4-2 in a doubleheader. In excruciating discomfort, he made an appearance at the 1964 All-Star Game at Shea Stadium in New York after being chosen as the head coach. A as-told-to tale with the byline, How I Live with Cancer, appeared in the August of 1964 issue of the men's magazine True. Hutchinson said that the item was yet another daring act in the face of inevitable demise. On the 12th of August, during a pregame homage for his 45th birthday, a shaken Hutchinson exclaimed to the crowd, What a blessed man I am! His uplifting answer was reminiscent of Lou Gehrig the Iron Horse, one of baseball's most revered figures who passed away at the age of 37 from amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, a gradual degeneration of nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord that came to be known as Lou Gehrig's disease. The day following the birthday tribute, the 13th of August 1964, Hutchinson went back to the hospital for additional care and third base coach Dick Sisler took over as manager. On the 19th of October, 1964, Hutchinson submitted his resignation and went back to the hospital. On the 12th of November, 1964, Fred Hutchinson lost his battle with cancer and passed away at a hospital close to his home in Florida. The motivated Reds finished in a tie for second place with the Philadelphia Phillies, one game behind the Cardinals after winning 29 of their last 47 games. The most courageous athlete award went to Hutchinson from the Baseball Writers Association. He received a posthumous Man of the Year award from Sport Magazine in 1964, and the Reds formally retired his uniform number, number one. The Hutch Award, given yearly to the player who best demonstrates his honor, bravery, and loyalty, was established by sports writers in 1965. Together with the Branch Rickey and Roberto Clemente Awards, it is one of baseball players' three most important humanitarian awards. Hutchinson was voted Seattle's Athlete of the Century by the Seattle Post-Intelligencer in 2000. Fred Hutchinson is laid to rest at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Renton. 
The Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, a premier facility in Seattle and the product of his visionary brother Bill's lifetime of work, bears his name. Dr. Bill participated in the founding of the Pacific Northwest Research Foundation in 1956 because he believed that research, not surgery, was the best approach to fighting cancer. William Hutchinson founded the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center as a part of the Pacific Northwest Research Foundation the year after Fred Hutch passed away. With the assistance of Senator Warren G. Magnuson, PNRF was able to secure federal funding in 1972 through the National Cancer Act of 1971 in order to establish one of the 15 new NCI-designated cancer centers in Seattle. The Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center became independent in 1972 and its building officially opened three years later in 1975. In 1976, the facility was classified as a comprehensive cancer center by the NCI. Along with UW Medicine and Seattle Children's, the center established the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, SCCA, a distinct nonprofit entity in 1998. This enhanced the center's ability to provide clinical care and was crucial to its ability to maintain its NCI Comprehensive Center status, which was extended to the center's consortium in 2003 and included the SCCA. The first SCCA outpatient clinic opened its doors in January of 2001. The Seattle Times published several articles that same year suggesting that researchers at the Institute, including co-founder E. Donald Thomas, were using cancer patients as subjects for unethical clinical research. According to the publication, patients in two cancer trials undertaken in the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s were not informed of all of the study's hazards or the study doctors' financial stake in its success. The study further claimed that despite indications that patients were passing away earlier and more frequently than anticipated, the doctor's lack of action to stop the research may have been influenced by their financial interests. As a result, the center assembled a group of impartial specialists to examine its current research procedures, which led to the implementation of new conflict of interest guidelines. Upon Lee Hartwell's retirement in 2010, Lawrence Corey was chosen to serve as the fourth president. Gary Gilliland succeeded him as president in 2015 and oversaw the organization through 2020. Under his direction, the center made the announcement that it would move into Zymogenetics' former space at the Lake Union Steam Plant. The transition was finished in October of 2020. As part of a rebranding in 2014, the company adopted its endearing local moniker, Fred Hutch, as its legal name. Fred Hutchinson's older brother, Dr. William Bill Hutchinson, passed away in 1997 at the age of 88. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Doing so really helps the show to grow and to expand to a new audience, so any help that you can give in that regard will be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include the Seattle Times, the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance website, RainCheck, Baseball in the Pacific Northwest, the Society for American Baseball Research, the Saturday Evening Post, HistoryLink.org, the Sporting News, Sports Illustrated, BaseballReference.com, and Baseball Almanac. Thank you for listening to Episode 91, Seattle's Hometown Baseball Hero. Episode 92 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. 
There's come on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's chimicum and stilicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing stillaguamish and the swirling skookum chuck. And moclips and copalis, where the razor clams abound. Little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.